0: Uh, It's been a couple of months, and it's been an interesting journey. We've gone through, I think we've made it through eight chapters out of 16. (laughs) So it may feel like we're only halfway, but we're not. We are more than halfway. The first... Half of the book is quite deep, and as promised, there's a lot of sort of theological, uh, sort of deep thinking that we've been wading through, and that's been really fantastic. And basically, we've been hearing over and over and over again this idea that our connection to God, our rightness before God, our ticket to, to life with Him comes not through the effort we put in, but rather through having faith. In God, right? Did we pick that up in the first half of the book? I hope so. Otherwise, I didn't do my job very well, and we're going to have to go back to the beginning. So, did we did we forget this out? Yes, a lot of lot of nods there at that point. Okay, very good. So, uh, we're going to pick up the pace now. and uh, We've got about three more chap. No, yeah, three more chapters of sort of that deeper, sort of theological, theoretical stuff before the tone of the book changes, and Paul, who wrote the book, is going to take a lot more practical view of how this all plays out in our lives. So hold on for that. We've got two more weeks over these next three chapters, um, and then we're going to get a little bit easier going. So you've done very well. But these next two weeks are going to be interesting because Paul, before he sort of moves out of his deep professor stage, is going to unload a double barrel of controversy on us. And he's going to give us a couple of things that are are quite difficult for us to sort of work our way through. So it's going to be a fun couple of weeks. Now, of course, none of this was controversial to Paul. He was just simply stating things as they were, as he understood them, as God had expressed them to him. But... 2,000 years of reading his writings has kind of muddied the waters a little bit and has created some diverging ideas about what it is that he is going to be saying. So, we're going to start you off this morning with the easier of the two issues as uh, Peter, Paul, not Peter, Peter wasn't there. Paul dives into one of the main themes of the book of Romans, which is the relationship between God and Israel. All right, now, the relationship between God and Israel, this is going to be covering all three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. So I told you we're, we're, we're moving quickly. Now, this relationship between God and Israel is based around the concept of heritage. Heritage is very, very important. Now, European culture doesn't really do heritage particularly well. That's At least from my experience, uh, we don't do that very, very well. But if you're from a Maori or Pacifica culture, for example, you will understand heritage or lineage or whakapapa much better. And this understanding of where we have come from is very important, uh, probably to you and to the Israelite nation, this was very important as well. So what I want to do to start off with is I want to kind of give us a rundown, a recap of the story of Israel. Okay, and it begins with a promise to a guy named Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. We know this, okay. So, many of you will know the story in uh, Genesis chapter 11 where God gives a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation, even though he was like a hundred years old, didn't have any kids. He was going to have a kid, and through that son, there was going to be a great multitude. The people, as, as more multitudinous. And then the stars in the sky, hence the picture of the stars in the sky. So he had this promise, and that through his seed, through his ancestors, blessing would come to all of the world, and restoration and reconciliation to God would come to everybody. So that was the story of, um, of Abraham, the beginning of Israel. Now, the next part of the story is very, very important. This is the Exodus And the law. Okay, so this is like a few, uh, uh, quite a long time after Abraham's promise. The nation, the descendants of Abraham, find themselves in Egypt and they're slaves, and this is bad. And so God enacts this amazing. A rescue operation called the Exodus, where he takes Moses or Charlton Heston, as we've got here, and he leads them out of Egypt and he through the Red Sea and there's the parting of the Red Sea and he takes them to this place called Mount Sinai and he does something very important at that place and he calls them his nation. Listen to these words in Genesis 19, Exodus 19. Sorry. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, God says to this group of people sitting at the bottom of the hill there. It says, you will be my own special treasure from among all of the peoples of the earth, for the, all of the earth belongs to me. So out of all of the countries, all of the nations, all of the people groups, I am choosing you to be my special people. This is very, very important, very critical, very deeply entrenched in the heart of the Jewish identity. All right, now alongside this, Um, we got the law. So Moses gave the people God's laws, which also becomes a key part of the identity of Israel. So that begins the nation of Israel. And then over the next thousand or so years, the nation of Israel sort of goes through this up and down, up and down, up and down. And God constantly pours out himself into this group of people. He gives them prophets to kind of guide them back to himself. He sends armies to discipline and punish them so that they will come back to himself. He sends them kings. He sends them um, judges and other things like that. So he is pouring a lot of effort into his nation. And all of this leads up to the person of Jesus. So Jesus comes along and He is the fulfillment of all of the promises, all of the heritage of Israel leads up to the person of Jesus. And Israel rejects Jesus. Jesus was the promised Messiah, the one who was going to fix everything, the one who was going to restore Israel to God. And they put Him on a cross. Well, um, after that, a, a little bit of a divergence starts to appear, and you can see this on the timeline here. There's as this idea uh, that Jewish persecution against this new group of Christianity persists, and so you've got this line of Judaism where The Jews say, no, Jesus is not the Messiah. We are going to try and squash this uprising. And then you've got this diverging line of the Christian faith. And on that diverging line, a whole bunch of Gentiles or non-Jewish people are invited in. We've heard this story before too. And so God opens up His kingdom to everyone from around the world. And He sends His people all around the world to be witnesses to Jesus. And they start pouring into the kingdom in droves. And so very, very soon, the number of Gentiles starts to outnumber the number of Israelites or Jews in Christianity. And as the, the persecution of Christianity by the Jews continues, the divergence splits and Christianity starts to lose its Jewish identity. And it starts to become a Gentile faith or non-Jewish faith to the point that now the two faiths of Judaism and Christianity have diverged to such a point that they are fundamentally different religions. And the idea, the concept of a Jewish Christian seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? It seems like an impossibility. How can you be a Jew and a Christian? The two are very different. Okay, So that is the timeline of how Israel has progressed. Now, Paul is writing his book, right near the beginning of that divergence, which is why so much of his book, especially chapters 9 to 11, focus on this relationship between the Jewish faith and this new Christianity group. Does that make sense? Now, we kind of brush past this um, because from our perspective at the end of the, it's so fundamentally different anyway. In fact, I mean, I'm even brushing past it because I'm I'm taking one message to go over three chapters of the book of Romans. So I know I'm fast forwarding this as well, but there's something that we need to understand. We need to understand that from Paul's perspective and his point in history, right there at the beginning of the divergence, the very concept of a divergence between Judaism or Jewishness and Christianity is fundamentally and painfully strange. It should not be this way. To Paul's mind, and therefore by extension to ours, there should not be two different faiths. Jesus was not a new religion but was a continuation and a culmination of the Jewish faith. He was supposed to fulfill everything that the Jewish faith was pointing towards and then invite the Gentiles in, but to invite them into the new Israel. The Jewish concept was supposed to be still part of the identity of Jesus' followers. We were grafted into, and this grafting of of different branches into the vine is is a picture. We're not going to get into it, but he gets into it in chapter 11. But this idea, we were supposed to be brought into the Jewish faith. So, the fact that things were unfolding so very, very differently in front of Paul's eyes brought him a great deal of anguish. Listen to the way he opens up the uh, chapter 9. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you sort of do the verses here. He says, "'I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel.' Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Theirs is the heritage of the people of God. Theirs is the promise. You can hear Paul's desire for his people coming through there. After all, it was supposed to happen for them. This is what was supposed to happen as they were supposed to come to Jesus. God had poured so much love and effort and promise into the people, the nation of Israel, for them to reject Jesus, to reject Him, is a tragedy beyond words. And I start here because I need us to understand that when we talk about God and Israel, and there is a lot of confusion around, say, the modern nation of Israel, and we, we watch the news and, and, and this conflict between Israel and Palestine, and, and we kind of sit there wondering, where, where are we supposed to stand on this? You know, like, are we supposed to be supporters of Israel, or is that just another nation? Whatever we end up discussing about all of that, about the state of Israel, about the relationship between God and Israel, we have to understand this is not purely an academic exercise. This is not just theory. This is deeply personal to God. They are His treasured people. They are the ones that He chose out of all of the nations of the earth. That he chose them. His heart's desire was that they would follow Him. We must remember they are treasured by God even to this day. God's heart breaks not to have His chosen nation gathered together to Him like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That was the image Jesus used as He looked at Jerusalem. So we need to understand that, but we also need to understand that Paul's desire for his people did not change his understanding of where they stood before God. Jumping into verse 30 of of chapter 9. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness, and we talked about this before, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble. That's Jesus. A rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in Him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. And Paul knows because he was part of their leadership and he was zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Talking about Jesus. Christ is the culmination of the law so that they may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So we saw this back in chapter 2, didn't we? This idea that the, the Jewish nation, they had the heritage of God. They had the promises. They had the patriarchs. They had all of that, and yet that was not enough all by itself for them to become right with God because they chose to make that the most important thing. They chose to do it under their own efforts. They said, you know what? We're God's people. We're God's people. We're fine. We're all good. And instead of throwing themselves at the feet of God and saying, Lord, we need you. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for giving us your laws. We need you. We trust in you. Instead, they got puffed up and they got arrogant about who they were. That's what we talked about back in in chapter 2. And so when Jesus came along and showed it by faith and not by works, they stumbled over him. He didn't fit their mold. They had all of this zeal, but the zeal was misguided. All right, so that's kind of sad for Israel. But that's not the end of the story for Israel. Jumping into chapter 11, listen to what Paul says. I asked them, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject His people whom He foreknew. And remember we talked about that when Ty was talking. That foreknew is that relationship He had with us, that love He had for us before even we were born. God did not reject His people whom He foreknew. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? Going back into the Old Testament. It says how He appealed to God against Israel? Elijah said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left. And they not trying to kill me. Elijah was a little bit of a woe is me type guy. He's, yeah, I resonate very strongly with Elijah. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, says Paul, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, this concept of remnant is very, very important. All throughout the Old Testament, this comes up. It crops up again and again. Every time God would come in and He would punish His people, He would discipline them, a lot of them would die. But He would always keep a portion, a portion of the nation that would carry on His promise. He would never completely destroy them. Much like... Noah and his family on the ark in the story in Genesis, where God flooded the world, he kept a remnant that would carry on and fulfill the promises. So this is very important, and it's going to come um, back become important again later. But there is also this: so there is a group of Jewish Christians that have remained. Even if the Gentiles outnumbered the Jews in Christianity, even in Paul's time, there was still a group of faithful Israelites who believed in the Messiah, as there is still today with Messianic Jews. All right, but everyone else still has a hope. In verse 11, again, I ask, Paul says, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Is that it? Is that it for the rest of the Israelites? Not at all. Rather, and this gets a little tricky, but rather because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I I like this verse. I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the prophet to the Gentiles, and I'm supposed to work with you, Paul says, and I like that, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. See, there's this really interesting trajectory that happens in the early church. There's this, God has his chosen people, right? The, the Israelite nation, the Jews, they are God's people, and Jesus enters into that space. Jesus comes first and foremost to Israel. In fact, he spends most of his time with the Jews. He doesn't spend much time with non-Jewish people at all because theirs is the promise. He came for them. So then they reject God, and so the focus through Paul turns to the Gentiles. So first Israel gets a chance, and and they sort of reject it, so then God says, all right, well, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. So their mistake opens it up for the Gentiles. So we have them to thank. Thank you, Jews. But then the desire is that as the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world, hears about Jesus, the desire is that Israel would get a bad case of FOMO and would kind of go, hang on a second, what's going on over there? And I want to be part of this. And they would come back to God as well. Because here's the thing. It is always best for the kingdom of God if the nation of Israel is in it. It is best for the kingdom of God If the nation of Israel is part of it and rejoined with it, that would make God so happy. And that should drive us to prayer for the nation of Israel. We should be praying that Jewish people all around the world would open their eyes to who Jesus is. That they would welcome Him as the Messiah and the Savior that they were promised. That they would be waiting thousands of years for, that they would take hold of all of that was being given to them, all of that, and see that it has culminated in Jesus and then turn to Him. That should be our prayer for Israel. We should, we should pray fervently for that. Because that is what is best. Does that make sense? You on track for that? Well, cool. Well, I would love to at this point stop. Um, And you probably would too, Um, because that is a nice, easy, sort of wrapped up concept. And as we think about Israel, we can think about them that they do stand separated from God because of their rejection of Jesus. But we want to pray for them and, and love them back into the kingdom. Yeah, that's nice and easy. However, unfortunately, Paul does not stop there. And he continues on in this thought. And that gets a little bit more difficult. Uh, and certainly a whole lot more controversial. Because he says in verse 25, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening, and that hardening is contextually from God, in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, or another translation is the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, which may relate to numbers or may relate to the the concept of everybody being available to come in from the Gentiles. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All right, so very, very quickly, a couple of issues arise difficult ones. The first is this idea where he says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part. And this kind of um, harkens back to some other stuff he says in chapter 9, which I very conveniently skipped over in this message, where um, Paul talks about choice, and he talks about God's sovereignty and making choices for us. And using people for his purposes and stuff like that. And it just opens a big discussion around free will versus predestination choice and stuff like that. Now, I'm going to open that can of worms next week. Okay, so (laughs) yay for me. That should be fun. Uh, Come back for that. That'll be great. But for this week, I want to look at the other issue that Paul brings up. And it's this fun little statement, which is highlighted up here on the screen, which is... All Israel will be saved. And that poses a little bit of an issue for people. And there are a lot of different viewpoints. And how do we understand what Paul is saying here? Well, I've got three different ideas. There are three different schools of thought that have been coming through that I've been sort of researching and thinking about. And the first is that it is exactly how it says that all ethnic Israel will be saved. No, whoa, 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 whoa. Just don't, no spoiler alerts here. All right. That's all right. I I got this part for (laughs) me. Katie is so wonderful. She's doing a great job. So this is the simple idea that Israel had been hardened by God. And again, we'll talk about that next week and what that means. So that they were unable to really understand and comprehend who Jesus was so that the Gentiles would have an opportunity, the non-Jewish people, all of us, we would have an opportunity to understand who Jesus is and come into the kingdom of God. Yay! However, because of God's promises to His people, from the patriarchs all the way down through, He remains faithful to His promises, are irrevocable, and He will at some point in the future, perhaps at the end when Jesus comes back or perhaps earlier, there will be a restoration of all Israelites into the kingdom of God. Whether or not they recognize Jesus, they have, because of their promises, a ticket into God's kingdom. And some uh, people along these lines may also include a political restoration of the nation of Israel and a restoration of the temple in Jerusalem. But that part of that view is not necessary to take on the ethnic Israel point of view. Does that make sense? So so that's one viewpoint, that all ethnic Israel will be saved. Regardless of what they do with Jesus, because they are descendants of Abraham, they're in. Okay, second one takes the opposite end of the spectrum and says, actually what Paul is meaning is not physical ethnic Israel, but spiritual Israel. So all those who believe in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, will be brought into the kingdom of God because that's what the rest of the gospel really kind of was alluding to. So it includes faithful Jews and it includes Gentiles. They become the identity of the new Israel. Uh, This view may also include the idea that God has actually rejected ethnic Israel as evidenced by the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. So some people take that view as well. And so the idea that Israel, the identity of Israel, has now moved to Christianity. And the kingdom of God is the new promised land, and and Jesus' words are the new law, the new covenant, and and that sort of thing as well. And the the temple, the presence of God amongst his people, is now us, because we have the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So that is another view. There's a third view which kind of sort of snuggles in between the two of them. And that brings up this idea of remnant again. And so this idea sticks with ethnic Israel, but it says that when Paul says all Israel, he means this remnant, which harkens back to the Old Testament where sometimes the remnant, the people who were left over, the people who were saved from judgment, took on the identity of the entire nation. They took on the identity of the entire promise to God. Does that make sense? So we've kind of got this, all ethnic Israel or all spiritual Israel or some... Uh, um, sort of a a compromise possibly, but this idea of a faithful remnant. I guess which is right. Which one is correct? How are we to understand this? Personally, I had grown up, my, my education had planted me firmly in number two, that this was spiritual Israel. But as I did a little bit more research on this uh, through for this message, I've actually gravitated a little bit more towards the third option. However, I have to say this: I cannot really hold it against anybody for holding any of these three views. They all have pros, very intriguing pros, and they also have difficult cons. None of the pros are slam dunks, and none of the cons are insurmountable. So so long as we are. Searching the scriptures and seeking out God, I think there is the ability to take on any one of these three views. But whatever our understanding of the future destiny of Israel, we need to keep in mind the reason Paul gave us this explanation in the first place. He says, we don't want to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. This is something we need to really understand about who we are. We are Gentiles. We are non-Jewish people. We are honored guests at the banquet. The Jewish people have that banquet, that, that inclusion in the kingdom of God. That is their birthright, Now, have they given up that birthright like Esau did in the Old Testament? Maybe. But we cannot ever look down our nose at them because we are lucky to be included. God chose Israel out of all of the nations of the earth. He gave them that promise. He did not give that to us but brought us in, gave us a a seat at the table. Have you ever uh, looked at the story of the prodigal son? I've never looked at the story this way before. But the prodigal son is this story of two brothers, one of whom runs away from home with his inheritance and then is welcomed back in. This is a story of Israel. The prodigal son is Israel that rejected Jesus and is welcomed back. The Gentile world does not even have any inheritance owing to us at all. We are a servant in the house in that story that we have been brought up and adopted into sonship. So we may never be conceited. We may never be arrogant about what is going on. So whatever our feelings about the modern actions of Israel, whether we're, we're sort of like, I guess it's okay, or whether we don't like it, whatever our feelings about the ancient Jews nailing our Savior to the cross, whatever our feelings about any of that sort of stuff, we must approach this with humility. And we must understand how much God treasures and loves His people. So we should be, in a very real sense, for Israel. Whether we approve of everything Israel is doing is, is, is actually irrelevant. We should be for the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, the descendants of Abraham, because they are the treasured people of God. We should pray earnestly that they would see and understand and connect to Jesus, their Messiah, their promised one. That should be our attitude and our posture towards him. Whatever else he does is a little above our pay grade. It's a little above our pay grade. He can do whatever he wants. In fact, I love the way he ends this this, uh, chapter and this whole discussion. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? No one. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? No one. For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Translation, and this is going to be a big theme for next week as well. Translation, it's not about us. It's about God. His glory. Him looking good. That's what this is all about. So wherever we end up, that's where we need to be looking. That God is glorified in the world. And I believe through this, the most glorifying thing would be for His people to turn to Him. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it be something for the nation gathered at the bottom of Mount Sinai treasured beyond all of others given the laws and the presence of God if they would recognize that what their promise was was that Jesus would be their savior too how beautiful the kingdom of God would be with the nation of Israel inside it let's pray Lord we uh we've grown up very far away from Israel It is a place distinct and different from us, and and we grow up in a culture not always knowing exactly how to think or feel about the nation of Israel. We know we have that history, uh, but we don't know what that does for us today. And and Lord, I, I also don't know how you feel about everything that's going on in the world today, but I do know you love them. You love them, and you want to gather them under your wings. Lord, may our prayers always seek their benefit, the benefit of the Jewish nation returning to you, not for our benefit, but for yours, for your glory. We just thank you so much. Please give us a good posture, a good heart, and a good understanding that we would understand what we need to understand about things like this, but that we would also let go of the things that we can't understand and that we, we can't wrap our heads around. And through all of this, Lord, may you be praised. It's in your name we pray. Amen.